0: Hello, and welcome to the Skeleton Factory Podcast, episode 40. episode 40. This is Adam coming to you from Austin, Texas, and today will be part three of the extreme Australian cult cinema series I've been doing. Movies with extreme characters doing extreme things in the land down under. In my mind, all these movies inevitably end with Mad Max. That's sort of the timeline that's in my brain. All these crazy assholes that are just getting shit-faced and destroying private property and other people's physical uh, beings. That's just building up to the inevitable Mad Max world. That's how my brain works. I'd like to think that the author of uh, Lord of the Flies, William Golding, saw all three of these films and was tickled and horrified, which is totally possible seeing as Golding died in 1993, so... Could have watched every single movie in the Extreme Australian Cult Cinema series. So, just for a refresher, part one of this series was episode 38 with the film Bad Boy Bubby. Part two was episode 39 with the film Wake in Fright. And today is part three with. Romper Stomper from 1992, written and directed by Jeffrey Wright and starring Russell Crowe, the late Daniel Pollock, and Jacqueline McKenzie. And this film came out at a time where there was. Mm, how do I put it? It was at a time that ran parallel to the Satanic Panic. Of the 80s and uh, early 90s. But it was, um, I don't know if it was really as focused on, because just the imagery of Satanism is just so irresistible to uh, talk show hosts, news broadcasters, you know, um, left wing groups, you know what I mean? Like you like you can just like satanism is just oh my god, it's just so theatrical and you can really just point to a picture of like the band wasp or <laughs> the band mayhem or something and be like, "See these fucking crazy assholes? This is what we need to protect our children from." But in the 80s and 90s there was this parallel movement of racist Nazi skinheads in the form of um, organized groups, bands, zines, and um, I mean, this was all over the world. And if you'd like to go back a few episodes, you can go back to episode 22 Where I did an episode on a young man named Ricky Casso Who was uh, kind of the unofficial poster child of the Satanic Panic of the 80s The episode is called The Acid King and Satanic Panic Also Don't Fuck with Vets That's episode 22, that's from February 11th of this year it's a good episode. Check it out. And there's some really good movie recommendations in there as well. But if you want to get a nice flavor of what the Satanic Panic was in the 80s and early 90s, that is a wonderful episode to um, to go back and reference. So I grew up in the 80s and the 90s. And during that time, uh, racists... Imagery was everywhere. It, like satanic uh, shit. Yeah, that was everywhere too. But like w- Nazi skinheads. Like w- Like it was a thing. I was was it were racist Nazi skinhead groups was a thing I was aware of at a young age. You know, along with He Man and Hulk Hogan and. <laughs> Nazi skinheads was another thing I was aware of as a young child. Because this shit was everywhere. Like, just in the 90s alone, and I'm going to kind of try to focus in on the 90s, because there was a lot of racist, uh, not necessarily racist movies, but movies depicting uh, racist skinheads in the 80s and in the, in 2000s and stuff. But I'm going to try to just hone in on the 90s, because that's really where I came into being. And some of the stuff that I saw was, like, for instance, I think everyone knows American History X. That's sort of the most well-known fucking skinhead movie in existence, right? Because, it's, you know, it's got Edward Norton and fucking uh, Edward Furlong. You know, that, that movie. Oh, Stacey Keach is in that? Yeah. <laughs> and uh, of course the lovely Faruza bulk you know but um but that's that's the one Nazi skinhead movie cautionary tale whatever movie that everyone remembers that was from 1998 that's when I, I remember seeing that when I was I was in continuation school at the time I've already I was already kicked out of high school and I remember seeing American history x and mmm and it was kind of i mean it, groups like the groups the the skinhead groups in american history x like were around northern california when i was a kid like i seen people like that around and um you know it wasn't really they weren't really my kind of people (laughs) you know but uh yeah but i was aware of them you know what i mean like I had a friend in continuation school whose mother, who was a tweaker, his dad was a tweaker, his sister was a tweaker, (laughs) like, he came from, and his mom was kind of like a, I don't know, she was kind of, she hung around bikers and shit, and sold them crank, and I think she also was prostituting, it was a whole fucking thing. That whole family was fucked, because my buddy was probably like 15 or 16 we were in the same continuation school together and then like, I remember, I remember he told me, um, I think it was his dad or it might've been his mom and his dad. Um, they sold his sister who which was, who was probably 18, 19, 20. She was probably like 18 or 19. She like, they sold his sister to some biker. <laughs> like. So, yes, people like in American History X, like people like that really did exist. And, uh, yeah, the the 90s were weird, man. Because there was all these sort of, like, backwards ideologies and relics of the 80s and 70s that just sort of pushed their way into the 90s. And by by, by the time we get to modern day today, you know, 2022, it's just, I'm just... Also, like the word like racist racism like has been beaten to death so much that I think it has long lost it has it's lost its power as a word because people just used it way too much during the Trump era, and now it just means nothing. Now it just it means everything and nothing at the same time because everything's racist. Aunt Jemima's syrup is suddenly racist. Uncle Ben's rice is racist. Milk. Just milk, regular milk is somehow racist, you know, that's, and um, it's hysteria. It's, I've seen all this kind of shit before and it's, it's a manufactured panic to scare the fuck out of people and keep them glued to their TVs and to social media and to news outlets feeding people information so they, <laughs> they can insert advertisements so they can sell you shit. This is not a new thing. You know what I mean? This is something that's been going on forever. And But in the 90s, it was, uh, you know, it was, it's just weird. It's weird to me that we're 30 years out from all these movies and uh, that culture, that, you know, at the time. And people think that we live in that time now. And we don't. I think if you're listening to this and you lean politically kind of left and you think that Donald Trump is a Nazi and all his supporters are Nazis and for, <laughs> you know, it's like watch some of these movies and then compare and contrast like people then and people now. Like that that sort of like white supremacist ideology. It's like it's it doesn't exist. You know, like we are integrated as a people. It's why wokeness won't work. It just can't work because you have to, ironically, you have to suppress people and their speech and you have to subjugate people in order to bring other people up. And the problem with that is, is like, okay, what happens when all the, all the, what happens if all the victims come into prominence? Okay, well, one of two things is going to happen. One, they become the majority and now they're the oppressor. Or two, they come into power and then wreak havoc on everyone who's not like them. And then we're and that's how you end up back in the fucking fifties. <laughs> it's like if we all come up together, what's the old analogy? If the if the boats if everyone we all get in the same boat, when the flood comes, we all rise up in the boat together. You know what I mean? There's some I don't know, there's some fucking some fucking uh, analogy about a boat and people. I don't know. Anyways, but '90s movies. So, so yeah, the the kind of pyramid of '90s movies is like uh, everyone knows American History X, and everyone would probably say that's number one. I'd say it's number one in that it's the most mainstream. But today's movie, Romper Stomper, so '92, so had a big head start on uh, American History X and the sort of racist skinhead movie genre. There, there was others in the 80s that were really good, but Romper Stomper really was a polished, refined, uh, like no fat on it story. And what else? There was also in 1998, there was a more, much more lower budget indie film called Pariah. And it's a little more clunky and dumb, than American history, uh, but it's really it's a night it's an interesting time capsule of a movie. Pariah, nineteen ninety eight. Check it out. There was also a short film directed by uh, director uh, Sarah Kane in nineteen ninety six called Skin, starring uh, uh, the the dude from Train Spotting, uh, Spud. Remember Spud from Train Spotting? He's in the short film skin and it's a i'm surprised that mo- that hasn't made like a weird kind of resurgence you know what i mean like i'm i'm surprised like no one's kind of dug that up and pointed to that as like like this is what should happen to nazis it's weird it, it's it's when you watch it at first it's very jarring and it's very like kind of crude but it's basically uh, Spud from Train Spottings, like a, a Nazi skinhead guy, in um, I guess England, and he, and he's ha- he has his little group of fucking like Nazi g- friends, but he lives in this apartment across the way from this uh, young attractive black woman, and he always kind of like oogles her, like gives her googly eyes across the way because he finds her attractive. And at some point, she's kind of gives her gives him the like mm, come hither f- finger gesture, and he gets out of his skinhead gear, his boots and braces, and his fucking like basically covers up all of his Nazi tattoos, and then he runs over there and he's like, "Hi, hi, I, I'm I'm here to see the black girl who lives here," and they go upstairs and. Um, if I'm remembering this correctly I think they have sex and she ends up tying Spud to the bed (laughs) and starts torturing him like she carves her name into his back with like a knife she takes like a stiff wire bristle brush and scratches off all of his fucking Nazi tattoos and shit and um I think at the end, I think he just kills himself. <laughs> I think that's what happened. Um, but yeah, the, it's a short film. It's called Skin. If you ever want to see the, if you ever want to see that, it's it's interesting. Uh, what else was there? Well, there's 1995 Higher Learning, which wasn't necessarily about Nazi skinheads. It was more about a bunch of people in college and a but it was like a bunch of stories. About a bunch of people and then they all kind of come together at the end uh, to, you know, their stories all join together at the end sort of thing. Right. So uh, higher learning, you know, you have like. Like Chrissy Swanson, you know, Buffy, the vamp, the original Buffy, the vampire slayer has a huge crush on her in the 90s. And like she is finding out that she's um, a lesbian. She's, she's experimenting sexually in college. And then what else is there? There's Omar Epps is like some track star guy. And he falls in love with Tyra Banks (laughs) and her giant forehead. Uh, And they're both like track stars. And there's like a love triangle situation there. And then there's Michael Rappaport who plays this, um, he was like an engineering student and he has, he's socially awkward, but he's, he's having trouble assimilating to college life. And then he ends up getting befriended by, um, who's the guy with a really dark black beard from fucking Yellowstone. That guy, he's, uh, that guy has like a little skinhead gang and they kind of recruit Michael Rappaport into their skinhead gang and basically turn him into just like some nerdy smart kid and turn him into a fucking nazi and then Michael Rappaport um goes on a fucking a fucking shooting spree in a clock tower on you know at the college and and then he ends up killing himself at the end and um, you know you know you may have your opinions about Michael Rappaport, you may like him, you may not like him, and, you know, and I don't have a problem with that, um, as long as your opinion is he's a fucking idiot. <laughs> <laughs> have you ever heard anyone say anything positive about Michael Rappaport ever, like, like you know what, That he's, a, he's probably a really good human being. It's like, no, no one says that, everyone's like, that guy's obnoxious, and he's an ass. But, uh, you know what he was he was decent in in higher learning, <laughs> and um let me just see, yeah uh, and then the, actually there was documentaries, there were some fine, fine racist documentaries in the nineties. there was um there was blood in the face that was from ninety one and um you know, blood in the face came out before fucking robber somber did beat it by by a year. And that's a documentary about, uh, like, southern white supremacists in the American South. And uh, what was it? One of the interviewers you may notice in uh, Blood in the Face is filmmaker Michael Moore. He was slightly less fat. Um, the movie doesn't really feature him. Like you can kind of hear his voice and see him off camera, just holding a mic. But he was one of the people just asking questions to these like racist guys in the woods. Um, but yeah, blood in the face. It's very, it's, it's humorous because it's kind of like watching like this is spinal tap or something. You know, it's, it's like you see these people in their natural state and they're not fed lines or anything. They're just being racist and being filmed and, you know, uh, there was also one in 93 called Skinheads USA, Soldiers of the Race War. <laughs> I want to say that might have been an HBO movie. Well, it was a documentary, but it, I think HBO put out Skinheads USA. And that one is, uh, that one's hilarious too. It's, I don't know. I, I I think people should watch these uh, documentaries and take inventory of the then and now. And people like this, like people like the ones in these documentaries still exist, but it's like the, But not like back in the day, like there's their numbers are greatly diminished. I think much of the culture has moved on from these types of ideas and and these people aren't the boogeymen that you know people would have you believe i think it's my opinion but yeah a lot, a lot of nazi skinhead um media in the 90s anyways and these films came out the after the decade of the 1980s and then the 80s gave us heraldo uh, rivera getting his fucking nose busted on national tv and gave us um old Klan members like David Duke and Tom Metzger running for political office in the 80s and 90s. And uh, the latter, Tom Metzger, who uh, he ran for office in California and and he ran as a Democrat. (laughs) David Duke, of course, he ran for president in 88 and maybe 92 as well, but he ran as a Republican both times. So I don't know. This idea that like, Being racist is a Republican thing is just silly to me. I don't know where people get that idea from. Like, the Republican Party was started as a slave abolitionist party. You know, it's, I don't know. I don't know where people get their idea. But basically what I'm saying is, like, uh, Democrats and Republicans can both be horribly racist. Okay? It's not kind of one or the other. And Tom Metzger is a is an example of that. And the latter, uh Tom Metzger, he founded this organization called the the White the the, the White Aryan Resistance. Yeah, that's what it was called. It was called the White Aryan Resistance or WAR, the acronym WAR. And you know, and that, uh, long story short, that didn't end well for Tom Metzger or his son, John Metzger. John Metzger was actually there on the episode of Geraldo Rivera, where like the big famous Nazi brawl broke out. If you've never seen that video, there's a video of a bunch of Klan members, Nazis, and um, like pro black leaders all being interviewed on the same show. And then a big brawl broke out, and fucking chairs got thrown, Geraldo's face got busted open. It was a whole thing. And, um, yeah, the son of Tom Metzger was on that episode. So, and, um, also the eighties was sort of the rise of racist bands like screwdriver screwdriver is like the rolling stones of skinhead bands of racist skinhead bands. That is. And even the decade before that, you had like Johnny rebel in the seventies, even though that was more of a kind of a country thing, but, but let's jump into the movie. Once again, the film is Romper Stomper. The year is 1992. Written and directed by Jeffrey Wright, starring Russell Crowe and the late Daniel Pollock and Jacqueline McKenzie. We open with a gang of Nazi skinheads, who are led by Russell Crowe as the character of Hondo. And Daniel Pollock as the character of Davey, uh, along with their gang of Nazi skinheads, they stop three Vietnamese teenagers who are just skateboarding through this dark, dingy tunnel in the middle of the night. They stop them, and after politely explaining to the three kids that Australia is, quote-unquote, not to their country, the gang violently beats them up. Now, the older brother of one of the teens named Tiger, along with friends from a local factory, vow revenge for this attack, but we'll have more on that later. We're then introduced to the character of Gabe played by Jacqueline Pollock. She gets picked up by her daddy and this other guy who's basically her dad's muscle. He, The guy looks like a combination of, uh, well, he looks like if the Big Show cosplayed as Ron Jeremy. That's what the guy looks like. So Big Show Ron Jeremy busts into this ap- apartment and restrains Gabe's boyfriend. Gabe's been shacking up with her abusive, junkie boyfriend in a tweaker apartment, and her dad's basically there to pick her up and, take her home presumably and she's grabbing as much of her personal belongings as she can kind of grab and there's a uh, prescription drugs all over the place and the the place is basically a tweaker shithole den of uh drugs and other uh and who knows what else uh, really uh so, her dad asks if she's been taking this medication called phenytoin. I believe it's called. It's an anti-seizure medication. And she clearly hasn't. You know. Then, they embrace. <laughs> they hug at one point, and without... Warning, uh, he tries to cop a feel on Gabe's boob, <laughs> which is gross, but it easily establishes um, that her well-to-do, caring father also has engaged in incest with his daughter, which is, um, it's unexpected during the scene, but just him trying to grope his daughter like tells you a lot. <laughs> and it tells you a lot about how Gabe ended up in the position she's in. He expects her to go back home with him, but she says no, basically. And he says, well, you always... You always start it, meaning the incest. So whether or not that's true, you uh, you don't bang your daughter, dude. <laughs> uh, that's sort of rule number one. And she slaps him, and for this, he slaps her back. So she grabs her shit, and they leave. And Jeffrey Wright does a great job using really uncomfortable imagery and situations to convey the story very quickly and clearly. And I know I've mentioned it before on other episodes, but it's 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 odd. It's odd to see that um sort of uh, incest has become such a popular um popular type of pornography that's widely widely famously consumed. Isn't that weird? Yeah. I don't know if someone would watch Romper Stomper now and be like, yeah, yeah, the dad's into his daughter. Yeah. I I would have to think someone listening to this would go watch Romper Stomper and find the dad groping the daughter scene, like, hot. It's weird, dude. (laughs) Don't watch incest porn. What's wrong with you? So we jump to our skinhead gang patronizing their local pub. They question the barkeep slash owner character about um, some Vietnamese coming into the pub recently. And it's also where Hondo notices Gabe sitting alone. So we, it's paced out. It's definitely the idea that Vietnamese uh, immigrants live in and around this part of um, Australia and these Nazi guys don't take too kindly to it. So, you know, and it's in there needs. Uh, I mean, it's, it's a, it's a small thing, but it's another, it's another one of those Jeffrey Wright things that things are just written very quick and clear, you know, when they like, clearly the, the, owner bartender guy doesn't mind if these like dipshit Nazi skinhead guys come to their bar and patronize the bar. And, but he also doesn't mind if Vietnamese people or probably anybody else for that matter come and drink at his bar. And, you know, one of the, uh, one of the skinhead dudes is like, like, what are you doing having, you know? What are you doing having, uh, having, uh, at his words, like, what are you doing having gooks in your bar? He's like, this is our place, mate. And the bartender's like, no, this is my fucking place, mate. So it's good to, uh, uh that that's established because the, the character, the bartender character guy, he ends up kind of being folded into the story more later on. So there's not, there, it's, this movie doesn't have any wasted characters, you know what I mean? It's kind of like watching a Clockwork Orange or something, like every character's there for a reason, and they're integrated into the movie one way or another, and, and it makes sense when they are, so I, I appreciate that, that a lot in, in this film. And I, you know what? I've never seen any of uh, Jeffrey, any of Jeffrey Wright's other films, so I don't, I don't know if this is like a kind of a constant thing in his um, his movies or not. But I think it works really well in this movie. So we cut to after, uh, well, after Hondo and Davey, kind, they both notice Gabe basically at the same time, and we cut to later on that evening. Um, we cut to Hondo making out with Gabe at, um, what looks like a, like an, uh, a semi outdoors mall that's closed. Everything at the mall is locked up and closed, but the, the gang is hanging out and, uh, you know, just hanging out and drinking at the, uh, at the mall. And Gabe notices a jacket in the store window that she she likes. And Hondo, um, I don't know, in order to impress her, or, he's like, oh, do you like that jacket? And then he, end up sm- he smashes through the window and retrieves the jacket. And a, alarm sounds, and everyone's got to run. So they all run back to their clubhouse, Gabe's fashion choices are really questionable. Like, she looks like an extra in the Karma Chameleon music video. Like, she dresses really bad. (laughs) And even as a kid, when I saw this, I was like, that lady dresses like a clown. That's weird. Why Why would a dude be into that? I don't know. So... So they go back to their clubhouse and after a night of playing hide the Aryan sausage in Hondo's Nazi man cave bedroom, <laughs> the next morning Gabe and Hondo are having some pillow talk and more like Hondo is laying in bed, smoking in silence as Gabe does a thing I like to call a trauma girl talk. <laughs> where when you're messing around with some chick and all she talks about is how every aspect of her life up until this moment has been the worst life anyone has ever lived. <laughs> and that's not exclusive to women, by the way. I mean, there there are guys who are like that too. And it's, um I don't know what that is. I don't know. I I think people... Maybe they think that's their way of relating to other people is just bluntly describing their past trauma and relationships. Ew, is there anything worse than somebody talking about a bad relationship that they've had? Ooh, awkward. But uh, so they're sitting in bed and she's like, uh, here's a picture of me mum. She died in a car accident. She got her head chopped off. Don't I look like her? I couldn't salvage much from me old place because of my junky ex-boyfriend. He tore it all up. But at least I still got me tap dancing shoes. Clackety clackety clackety. It's good to talk about these things. Guy, I just met last night. Here's me tarot card deck. Me mom's gonna be reincarnated as one of my children someday. <laughs> Meanwhile, Hondo couldn't give less of a fuck after this. We're, uh, <laughs> after the scene, we are visited by some more of uh, some more Nazi friends from out of town. So we have the character of Magoo. Who's like another Nazi homeboy of uh, of Hondo's and and the rest of the gang, and his girlfriend uh, Jackie and their other buddy Flea. Once we introduce these three characters, we are we we jump to the uh, the infamous party scene in Romper Stomper, and um, and it's probably what people remember most about romper stomper, probably. Like if you've seen it once, you'll probably remember the the skinhead party scene. It's drinking and headbanging and pogoing and humping and according to director uh Jeffrey Wright, much of the depictions of sex in the party and the party scene was was real. He said at some point that yeah, the actors just uh, started fucking each other, and he happened to catch some of it on camera. And he's like, "Well, I don't know. Everyone's taking such a method acted approach, uh, method acting approach, rather to all of this. So, um, might as well film it." So, at the skinhead's local pub, a Vietnamese businessman. And his sons are finalizing the purchase of said pub. And two of the younger fellows of the Nazi gang see them at the pub. And they run to go get Hondo and the gang. And they all load up in their car and rush down to the pub. And they brought, like, fucking bats and chains and shit with them. And one of the Vietnamese guys... um, Manages to uh, get away to go get backup, and uh, from our from our old friend Tiger, from the beginning of the movie, remember, and but the other two guys uh, weren't so lucky, and Hondo and his gang take them out back, and uh, start beating the shit out of them, really torturing them, really. So now we get uh, Tiger and his gang they show up and they're not even really a gang they're just like friends and siblings and shit that all are just like okay let's let's go fucking roll on these fools and so now we get the big brawl scene and just for the head count's sake let me let me explain how fucking outnumbered the skinhead guys are okay so hondo's gang you have you have Hondo, you have Davey, there's Magoo, there's a guy named Sonny Jim, a guy named Brett, a guy named Cackles, the youngest one named Bubs, a guy named Champ, and, and Luke. So like nine, there's like nine dudes in the skinhead gang. Meanwhile, Tiger and his band of merry restaurant staff outnumber them probably three to one so when they roll up on this pub there is a fucking there's just carload after carload of fucking dudes so behind the pub is a veritable lynching turned into an all out brawl with both sides taking losses and even Davey having to protect Gabe and himself and the crew from one Vietnamese dude with a knife Davy ends up getting the better of the guy. He ends up stabbing the dude with his Hitler Youth, his Hitler Youth knife, uh, which was purchased earlier from his friend Magoo. Magoo being one of the unlucky casuals of this battle, setting up the knife sale and paying it off now is was again really good writing on Jeffrey rights part really good shit so now the skinheads are quickly outnumbered and are forced to retreat so three of their buddies get left behind are they dead alive we don't know in fact we never find out so no time for rescuing fallen comrades in this situation so they run The Vietnamese dudes are like, right behind them, and the chase is on. So, hordes of pissed Vietnamese are hot on their heels, and they're trying to get back to their clubhouse. So, along the way, they lose another dude in their skinhead crew, who just gets fucking mollywopped by uh, two guys on a moped who just bashes. They bash his head apart, and he falls in a pile of trash, and then he just gets mobbed who totally gets mowed over by the angry mob. So what's left of the skinhead crew? So pretty much immediately the the skinhead crew is just chopped in half. And then you have Gabe. And then you have these uh, two other chicks who are basically just... who basically just hang around these guys and... and, uh, And party. (laughs) Uh, And their names are uh, Megan and Tracy. They're like these, I don't know, kind of dumpy, goth chicks. So they finally make it back to the clubhouse uh, safely, quote unquote, safely. (laughs) But the mob is already have surrounded the clubhouse they've surrounded the building and they have weapons and they have every intention of breaking into the place and fucking up everybody in this gang and i mean they're trying to get in they're busting windows they're trying to crowbar the doors open and once they realize they're surrounded hondo realizes like okay this is gonna be our our last stand you know we're we're cornered so hondo takes a chain and waits for them at the uh, at the front door of their uh, clubhouse and And the door's about to be knocked down any second. And this sort of establishes the bravery of Hondo. It establishes Hondo's bravery in... And his absence of fear once confronted with those who wish to do him harm. And his gang on their turf. So... But the rest of the gang's like, fuck this. And when he realizes that they're scared and they realize that this, this is a fight that can't be won. Uh, he takes a breath, and he sum, summons up some clarity, and Hondo instructs everyone to escape out of this, this, like, uh, hatch in the roof. And after uh, they get onto the roof, they run across several roofs in this sort of industrial area where the clubhouse is, and they manage to get away, but... The Vietnamese end up burning their clubhouse down. And the scene ends with Tiger once again vowing to get them next time. Like Dr. Claw at the end of Inspector Gadget. <laughs> I'll get you next time, Gadget. Um, when I You ever watched Inspector Gadget when you were a kid? I did on Nickelodeon. Everyone, when they were a kid, they always used to say there's one episode where you see Doctor Claw's face, but that's not true. That's just shit kids tell each other to sound cool. It's fun to lie when you're a kid, but um, but I, I aha, I have actually seen Doctor Claw's face, and it's not in the cartoon, unfortunately. You, the only time you ever see Doctor Claw's face is in the form of a, um. There were some Inspector Gadget toys made throughout the '80s, and there's one Doctor Claw toy. And the way you know how you get a, you get an action figure, right? It's like the action figure is like on top of a like a thin piece of cardboard, and then it has that like little plastic shell that goes over it, so you can kind of look at the you can look at the action figure inside. But um, the packaging for Doctor Claw, they put this like sticker. Over the top of where his face would be, so you can't see his face. You can see his body, but you can't see his face. So the only way to see it is if you buy the toy, which is brilliant, brilliant marketing. <laughs> and and what does Doctor Claw look like? Um, good question. Uh, he looks like what does he look like? I don't know. It's 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 actually incredibly underwhelming. Um, he looks like. He looks like if Jim Jarmusch was on bath salts and and he suffered some sort of um, massive cranial uh, 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 injury. Like if, if, if Jim half of Jim Jarmusch's head was kind of crushed from some sort of horrible accident and he was high on bath salts, that's what... Dr. Claw looks like. Anyways, I'm not here to talk about Inspector Gadget. So, the the two hang-around chicks, Megan and Tracy, these uh, two goth chicks, lived briefly in some hippie squat warehouse. And after the gang uh, escapes, well... Their clubhouse is being burnt to the fucking ground. You know, um, this mob of fucking Vietnamese dudes, like, fucked up half their crew, and they can't go back now. So Megan and Tracy are like, okay, we can trick these two guys we know who live at this, like, warehouse squat, basically. We can go hide out there so we can roll up on them. We can rob them and then fucking kick them out. And then we can kind of hold up uh, their uh, warehouse cause it's, it doesn't belong to anybody. Right. So, so we going to trick these two guys who live there. Um, so they got to first let them in. So they go to the door and they basically, the guy doesn't want to let him in, but he's like, they're like, Oh yeah, we got some, we have some money that we owe you. So open the door and let us in. So of course he opens the door and, they're completely unaware. These two uh, hippie dudes in this this warehouse they they're unaware that Megan and Tracy brought a pack of violent Nazi skinheads with them. <laughs> so Hondo and the crew barge in, and uh, they very and and Hondo very politely, very nicely informs these two fellas that that they need to leave. Or he's gonna chop their legs off with a hatchet. So the two guys, uh, they leave. So now this 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 uh hippie squat warehouse is now uh the official property of, of Hondo and what's left of his battered and beaten gang. So so the guys leave and now this warehouse is their home base. So which leaves enough time for everything to kind of cool down for a minute. And, um, the movie's good about that. Like you'll have some like really, really intense scene. And then immediately afterwards, like the, the movie will kind of turn the temperature down a little bit and like build some exposition for a couple minutes and then, and then off to the next violent nightmarish disaster. (laughs) So, so now that they're in this place, they, um, the the movie has time to kind of chill for a minute, and they establish uh, they have they have a couple of scenes where they establish uh, Gabe and Davy that they like each other, not over the top love triangle type situation, but but seeing that Gabe is um, technically with Hondo, um, but her and Davy are kind of harmlessly flirting with each other, so it's obviously that uh, it's obvious that they like each other and i don't know and it's kind of it's kind of sweet you know it, it kind of lets you forget that they are a vicious violent um gang of street thugs <laughs> and you can kind of see them as people you know it's not like um i don't know if you're watching the warriors or a movie like that where you, there's just, or or the gang from uh, <laughs> assault on precinct 13 or something where it's just violent, zombie, like violent uh, fucking gang. It's just, they're, they're people and they, and the movie takes time to kind of establish that the, the worst people in society also have moments of sensitivity and, you know, It's not across the board, by the way. (laughs) I definitely have known people who um, are only out for themselves, total sociopaths, totally hostile in every way, and have no redeeming qualities whatsoever. You know, they're, you know, but not in this case. (laughs) But um, at least in the case of um, Gabe and, and Davey. So, like it's like Davy's emotional uh, intelligence is you know he's a little bit more tapped into that than say Hondo or any of the other guys in the game. But so we, but 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 that moment passes and we quickly, um, just out of nowhere, suddenly Gabe has an epileptic seizure. And Davey's there to comfort her and every, everyone there's like, oh my God, what's going on? Because they, they established earlier on that Gabe does have some form of epilepsy, but doesn't, um, it takes medication to kind of curb her seizures, but is, uh, doesn't usually take her medication, which is, I mean, that's, that's not good. And the fact that Davy is comforting her when she's having this seizure, um, kind of reinforces that this is kind of a blossoming love story between the two of them. Um, uh, but it won't all be sunshine and rainbows. Believe me. I did, I did see this one thing real, real quick. Uh, there's this one thing I saw. It was like a, uh, it was like a Jordan Peterson lecture. And he talks about, um, he was talking about Dostoevsky and he was talking about how he had, um, Dostoevsky had epilepsy that he ended up, like, I guess he was in a, uh, he was in a prison camp at one point when he was in college. He got thrown into a prison camp for being a um, a student protester, basically. And one day the, the guards pulled him out of his cell and took him in front of a firing squad and shot him. But all the guards were using blanks. And it scared him so bad that he developed epilepsy and then he had epilepsy for the rest of his life. And, um, but one thing that Jordan Peterson was talking about was, um, there's studies, there were studies done on people with epilepsy where some of them were report before they would have an epileptic seizure. They would experience these things that they were, um, they were called auras where basically you would, you would um, experience some kind of. It it almost sounds like, like a psychedelic experience before the seizure would hit you, and he explained like one guy would, he would feel like his hand was possessed, <laughs> and he could feel it in his hand, like like in like Ash in the Evil Dead or something, where he can feel the possession in his hand. It would creep up his arm, it would get to his shoulder, and then once it got to his head. His epileptic seizure would hit. And then there was another case of a guy who would, his aura would, he would feel that his exact double would appear behind him. And if he turned around to look, he'd have a seizure, but if he didn't turn around to look, he wouldn't have a seizure. That's weird, right? And the thing with that is some people, um, these these auras were so intense that people would forgo taking their medication, their seizure medication, because they wanted to experience the uh, the aura. Is that weird? So in this movie, I, I thought about that. You know, it's it it's maybe Gabe doesn't take her anti seizure medication because um, because obviously she likes to take drugs too. Like it's they don't get too much into that into the movie, but it's inferred enough where you're like. She's kind of like, you know, she's kind of continuously couch surfing and just kind of hooking up with whatever dude she can and, and does do drugs, but they don't really get into, um, it, it's, it's pretty much like she takes the, they infer that she takes a prescription medication in the beginning of the movie, but, um, and I think I've mentioned this before, but. but the actress uh, who played Gabe was basically... She basically played Gabe as if she was sort of an on-again, off-again heroin addict. That's kind of how she played her. But but you never see the character of Gabe doing heroin at all. But mm. So after this, we jump to a powwow scene where everyone in the gang, what's left of the gang, is sitting around. Um, basically plotting their revenge and they're talking about acquiring guns and, um, and, and guns are not so easily or so easy to get in Australia than they are in, say, the United States. So it's, it's one thing to get revenge. It's another thing to be like, okay, we're going to get revenge, but we need guns. So that requires it's a, it, it takes some doing. <laughs> like if you're gonna if you're gonna get a gun, you're probably gonna end up stealing it in Australia. That's kind of how they set this up. So Megan and Tracy, when they hear that these dudes want to get guns and go fucking kill some people, so Megan and Tracy are like, you know, fuck this. Like we don't want to be around if you guys are gonna start killing people. So they decide to dip out of this situation. Um, you know. Which is which is good because also it's a it's a nice uh, it's a nice way to get their characters out of the story, and um, so they leave, and as the group continues to get smaller, you can kind of sub- subconsciously feel the walls start to close close in on, on our gang of 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 Nazis just the tiniest bit more, so as their as their numbers dwindle, you know, so Hondo figures in order to get their own private final solution up and running uh, against the Vietnamese, they got to go pull a home invasion to get uh, money, vehicles, cash, guns, and uh, so Gabe suggests that, oh, hey, I know the perfect house you guys can go rob. And it happens to be her uh, pedo father's house, so it's more like a mansion, really. It's a it's it's a huge fucking, uh, huge fucking place. So she shows up one night to the compound, <laughs> her dad's house, which is equipped with like uh, camera surveillance, a giant security gate, an intercom, and her dear old dad buzzes her in, of course. And Hondo, Davey, and the gang hide outside the gate. So Gabe waits for her dad to kind of drop his guard and excuses herself off to the ladies' room. But in reality, she's going to buzz the gang through the gate and into the house. So once they get in, they they tie up Dad. (laughs) They tie him to the toilet, sort of like a, Imagine if you were sitting on your butt on the ground, and you were, and you reached around and hugged the toilet, where your hands went all the way around the back of the toilet. That's how he's tied, and he's tied by the wrists. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure a lot of you, I'm sure a lot of people out there have hugged a toilet and one time or another, but in this case, uh, this dude's tied to a toilet while the skinheads are ransacking his house. And they're smashing shits and pillaging anything that they could. Um, I don't know anything they can get some uh, aftermarket value, um, you know, including you know guns, art pieces, cases of champagne, and even a a lovely Rolls Royce. So, but in the ineptitude of this uh, of this group. Um, their ineptitude is, is staggering. Actually, they, they really should have just tied up dad, took all the shit they needed and then just got the fuck out of there. So they, uh, they go in the garage, there's a Rolls Royce there and they just start stocking up the fucking car with their stolen cachet, And, um. In the garage,ers uh, these guys notice that there's also a uh, racially inferior Japanese grandma car parked in there as well. So um, <laughs> that they end up smashing. So since there's no urgency to leave, the they decide to um, raid Dad's booze cabinet and smash up the poor little Japanese car. So meanwhile, Gabe wanders into the bathroom where her dad is, and he you know, he's still tied to the shitter and questions him about why he abused her in the past and even infers that her mother's gruesome death was no accident. And dad has his uh why are you doing this to me moment? And Gabe says that she just wanted to see him squirm and dad's like yeah, you you think I molested you, but bitch, you wanted me, which is gross. And Cave uh, kicks the shit out of him, and the and then she picks up this big gold, very ornate uh, statue of the Buddha, and then fucking smashes it into the toilet. Um, just barely missing his head, you know, and it ends up shattering the toilet bowl, and and just missing his head. Right. So she says, next time I'll aim at your skull. So that's scary. So she leaves and dad notices that, um, he can cut through his, his binds around his wrist with like the broken porcelain of the toilet bowl. So he starts trying to like cut, uh, cut his binds free. And he eventually does. And then he, Kind of army crawls to the fucking kitchen and digs a uh, an actual working pistol out of a cereal box and chases everyone down to the garage and gunshots ring out. Everyone jumps into uh, not the Rolls Royce with all their plunder, but the uh, trashed uh, vehicle <laughs> and uh, and speed off, leaving behind all the good shit um, and. And, and the window, I mean, what was it? The car's windows are all smashed and they tagged all over the fucking car and kicked in the doors and sprayed graffiti all over it, um, you know, graffiti like uh, Jap crap and just the word fuck just on the side. <laughs> and yeah, they all jump in and take off and they got bullets whizzing past their ears and They end up back at the warehouse and, uh, with nothing now, (laughs) they're right back where they started and, uh, Hondo and Gabe end up getting into an argument over Hondo and the gang's inability to pull off a fucking pretty easy cut and dry home invasion and, uh, Gabe ends up calling Hondo a loser and he jumps up and bitch slaps her and tells her to get the fuck out. She's like, "He's like, we're done. Get the fuck out. And the relationship is now over. So, so she storms out of the warehouse and Davey goes to leave also because he's had enough. And um, he tells Hondo like, well, fuck this, I'm going home. And Davey wants to go with Gabe, but she says no. She has some shit she needs to go do, and she has to go alone. So, just out of earshot of the rest of the gang, because he just kind of storms off, it, he jots down an address that Gabe can go to, to to find him if if she wanted to. And it's at his like a German grandmother's house. So, so they go their separate ways. And uh, Gabe immediately calls the cops to give the whereabouts of what's left of Hondo and his warriors of the New Dawn. <laughs> they um, the next morning, the police descend on the warehouse, and they kill the youngest of the uh, of the group, Bubs. After he pulls a non functioning revolver that he took from Gabe's dad's house, Just, they, they shoot him like in the forehead like it's very violent and that's what happens when you pull out a phony gun on a bunch of cops who uh, don't have phony guns, I guess. So, so the last two dudes in the gang are, uh, they're beaten and arrested and lucky for Hondo, he was able to get away clean and, um, then we cut to Gabe is now in this little suburban area and she stops by Davy's grandma's where uh, they engage in some uh, premarital unprotected vaginal intercourse. Very nice. And they, they wake up the next morning uh, in bed to Hondo standing over them. And he looks shook, and he tells Davy that uh, the cops killed Bubs, and then they took away the uh, their two uh, Nazi homies, and that they're the only two left. And when he asks how did the cops know where to find them, Gabe looks terrified, and she should look terrified. <laughs> because she narked them out after all, but Davey comes in uh, with the save and says, uh, you know, hey, Hondo, like, you know, we we left the warehouse together, and she was with me the whole time. So there's no way she could have snitched you guys out. So now Davey doesn't know. Now he, now he doesn't know that if Gabe actually called the cops or not because they weren't together the whole time. Like she went one way, he went another way and he doesn't know if she called the cops and it seems like he doesn't care really. But, um, he knows that if, uh, if Hondo kn- knew for sure it was her, he'd probably kill her. So, um, but David doesn't even ask her, like, did you call the fucking cops on, like, he doesn't pull her aside and, like, ask her, it's just, he's just like, no, Hondo, she was totally with me the entire time, so so Davy, he's, uh, he's deep in the pussy whipped zone clearly, and I don't know, this is just more brilliant writing in that um, really five people knew where uh, Hondo's gang was at the warehouse, really. Okay, so there was the the two hippie guys who were there when the, uh, Hondo's gang took over the warehouse. And so they, they those two guys know for sure, and they were allowed to leave. And there was Megan and Tracy who left on their own because they didn't want to be around when these guys start fucking just killing people out of a fucking... Out of revenge. And then there was Gabe. So really, it's 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 really brilliant writing in that Hondo can't be sure that it was her. There was Megan and Tracy, and then there's those two hip, the fucking hippie guys, and he doesn't know where they are. And he probably doesn't know where Megan and Tracy are, and he probably doesn't really have the time to go track them down. Um, Because, you know, I'm sure the cops are looking for them. So he has to just kind of take Davy's uh, word that she had nothing to do with uh, them getting snitched out and Bub's getting murdered. So Hondo suggests they go on the run. He reassures Davy that he's got a really good plan and everything's going to be all right. But they can't stay at his grandma's house because eventually the cops will come looking for him there. So he's like, "I got a I got a plan." Everything's going to be all right. Let's 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 just get out of here. And then we hard cut to Hondo choking this Middle Eastern man to death with a chain on the floor of a gas station. And Gabe is filling up bags with food and completely freaking out. And Davey's filling up a stolen car, presumably the guy he's murdering, so, <laughs> filling up uh, his car with gas. And Hondo empties the register and their life on the lam begins. And it begins with them murdering some fucking poor guy on the floor of a gas station and taking his car. So after this, they uh, drive through the night and they end up making it to uh, the ocean. So um, director, writer, director uh, Jeffrey Wright wanted these, these guys and, All of this, like skinhead garb, in a scene that didn't, that looked very organic and natural. And they, he wanted that sort of juxtaposition between this beautiful, organic beachside scene and have these two dudes, these two skinhead guys walking around on the beach. He just wanted that sort of, like, they're a product of an unnatural world. And now they're in this natural world, but, but the beauty is kind of undercut in a way because you know that they're on the run. Like these are like violent murderers. (laughs) So, which is kind of subverts expectations because once they get out of town, it's like you don't expect them to go to the fucking beach because it's, it's the entire movie has been in more of a city setting the whole time. So it's a little jarring. It's kind of like at the end of, um. Well, what's referred to as the happy ending at the end of one of the versions of Blade Runner where uh, Deckard and Rachel leave Deckard's apartment and then they're seen driving in Deckard's car through the countryside <laughs> where you're just like, yeah, it's just, it feels very disconnected because they're driving through these rolling green hills with blue skies and you're like, what the, where, where the fuck was this place the whole time? But anyways, um Yeah. So basically these absurd urban creatures on this beautiful beach and Jeffrey Wright wanted to go, like this is like the perfect place for, for this movie to come to an end. And the beach um, where this scene was shot, I think, I think, I'm not 100% sure, but I think it was actually the famous Bells Beach, which is the same beach from Point Break. Where it's the uh, fucking Bodie Patrick Swayze. <laughs> almost forgot his name uh, but so the, that was the whole thing in point break like Patrick Swayze um, wanted to eventually get to Australia because there was like the the hundred year storm and he wanted to surf the hundred year storm and it's in Bell's Beach in Australia. So they get down to the beach. They figure they'll take a break. They've driven through the night. And they're just going to kick it here for a second. And then they're going to get back on the road. And it's desolate. There's no one around. So so Gabe goes, wanders down down on the beach to explore. And Hondo and Davey uh, take a walk down the beach and have a little chat. And Hondo reassures Davey that he's going to get him out of this uh, nightmare of a situation. And also... Hondo has a strong, um, bros before hoes stance, of uh, <laughs> um, this, on this situation and tells David that, you know, we need to get rid of this chick. She's, she's just using you. She doesn't really love you. She's going to drag us both down. And H- Hondo proposes that they go just drop her off somewhere and they'll give her like 200 bucks. And just kind of part ways. And then the two of them could just go into hiding. And Davey really isn't, at this point, he's he's not having it. So Davey finally tells Hondo, like, fuck that. She's with me and she's my problem now. So, like, she's staying. And Hondo's like, fuck. Like, that's a bummer. <laughs> You know, um he's basically like, bro, I tried to make you listen to reason, but you know, I tried, but I guess you don't want to fucking listen to reason. So Davy's deeply steeped in denial and pussy whipsness, So so unbid notes to Hondo and Davy. Uh Gabe was nearby. It's cause, uh Hondo and uh, Davy were talking near the this like kind of cliff cave area by the beach and Gabe was nearby and can overhear them talking. And, but from her, from what she heard, it sounded like the two of them were plotting to, you know, get rid of her. But the way she heard the conversation was like, it sounded like Davey agreeing with Honda that they should get rid of her. So being, Totally not a crazy bitch at all. Uh, Gabe goes up the cliff where the car is parked, douses the thing in gasoline, and lights it on fire. And Honda and Davy are down on the beach and they see just like this these plumes of black smoke coming from from up the cliff and they realize like, oh shit, that's where the car is. So they run up there to see what's uh what the fuck is happening and When they get there, the car is full on in a blaze. Like, the car is not recoverable in any way. It's fucking on fire. And Gabe uh, is standing there, and Hondo's like, what the fuck did you do? And Gabe's like, and and, and, and Gabe tells Hondo, like, oh, she was the one who called the cops on him at the warehouse. And Hondo takes the rational approach and charges at her and starts... Choking this crazy bitch in a fucking blind rage, and Davy tries to pull him off her, but Hondo just mollywops the shit out of Davy. Meanwhile, Gabe is able to break loose and run back down towards the beach to escape. But uh, Hondo's got he's seeing red at this point, so Hondo's right behind her, like chasing her down. And then she tries to run into the ocean, (laughs) but Hondo just catches her and tries to drown her. I don't know. That's weird. I don't know. Maybe she's an exceptionally good swimmer or something like if you're trying to escape somebody, why would you run into the ocean? (laughs) Get a swim away. Reminds me of Point Break. It's like, come on, Johnny Utah. Where am I going to go? There's close. There's cliffs on both sides. I'm not going to paddle to New Zealand. Remember that? Fucking Bio con Dios amigo. If you don't know what I'm talking about, you need to watch Point Break with uh, Ken Reeves and uh, Patrick Swayze. Fantastic film. So, Hondo's fucking just drowning her in the surf. And, uh, Davey runs down just in time to save her. And,. Hondo and Davey just start fighting in the water and fucking Hondo is just getting the best of him. It's clear that Hondo is the uh, the more cunning and uh, capable fighter and he's fucking dunking Davey's head in the ocean and punching him in the face and he's yelling at him like, I told you, you fucking cunt. I told you that this bitch was fucking trouble. I fucking told you. And he did tell him. I mean, to Hondo's credit, he did tell Davey, like, if we keep this bitch around... It's going to be trouble. She is trouble. She's going to bring us down. And I mean, here you go. Here's your your toxic uh, pudding proof. Here you go. So Gabe, while the two of them are fighting, Gabe manages to make it back to shore. And fucking Hondo runs after her, tackles her down again, and tries to smother her to death into the wet sand of the beach, which is that, that would suck to be smothered, suffocated to death inside of just wet beach sand. Like, fuck that would suck. But Davy emerges from the waves. And at this point he's pleading. He's crying for Hondo to stop what he's doing. And he feels like the only thing that he can do at this point is he pulls up his jacket draws his Hitler youth knife out of his waistband, and he stabs Hondo through the back of the neck in one shot. Bam. Hondo stumbles away in complete disbelief, and blood's pouring out of his mouth and squirting out of his neck, and he eventually falls dead on the beach. And the last thing he saw was his best friend in the whole world holding a Hitler Youth knife <laughs> stained with his blood. And, um, Davy goes to, um, goes to, uh, comfort Gabe. And, and just that one shot of him, like, holding her in, in his arms and them looking at each other is just like you can tell that. That they're, they they are uh, they're they are really in love, you know. Meanwhile, like twenty feet away, like his best friend in the world is is bleeding out on the beach, and um. And around this time, a uh, a tour bus full of uh, Japanese tourists come out, and they're filming the car on fire, <laughs> videotaping the car on fire, and then they see them down on the beach, and they're filming them and that's the end of romper somber that's how it ends and yes it's a it's a, it's a cautionary tale <laughs> what is what is the moral of the story i don't know don't be a violent racist psychopath don't be a sociopath uh don't hook up with crazy chicks <laughs> But um I like this movie a lot. I've I sur- I first saw this movie when I was like 12 or 13 and um I, and I saw it around the time where I saw a bunch of really good movies that like I still watch to this day. Like I saw Reservoir Dogs that around that same time and a bunch of other really cool shit but but yeah, at a young age, like movies like this really kind of shaped my—I um, don't know—it it, it gave me a more um, educated palette on um, on films. So uh, yeah, Romper Stomper, I definitely recommend it. Check it out, and I'm glad that it is the sort of the bookend to the extreme Australian cult cinema series I've been doing, and again, I, I definitely recommend that you uh, check out some of the other two movies that, uh, that were in this, uh, series, that would be Bad Boy Bubby, and Wake in Fright, and, um, and also Romper Stopper, it's a very good selection of films, all right, so, um, I'm gonna wrap it up here, uh, you can... Hit me up on Instagram. That's at skeleton underscore factory. If you want to send me any movie suggestions for the future, Um, if you'd like to make any kind of requests for movies, do it there. Um, Or if you just have any questions for me, just hit me up at the Instagram. That's skeleton underscore factory. You can also help support the show at patreon.com forward slash Skeleton Factory where I have some completely separate Skeleton Factory episodes and they're a little more loose so it kind of feels like we're more of an an intimate setting together (laughs) and I uh, just recently um, finished up a episode on the new Jordan Peele film Nope and um, also there's a and there's and there's some other audio tracks on there I talk about The, the Gangster Chopper Reed Also an Australian um, Movie made about him And um, I also talk about Black Mask Or not Black Mask What am I talking about? Black Phone Black Phone and also a film Called Watcher Which I think is probably One of the best Horror films Of uh 2022 like easily black phone not so much sorry all you Blumhouse fans uh, I didn't really like that movie too much but anyways I am going to get out of here guys thank you so much for listening this is the Skeleton Factory podcast rescuing your movie nights one movie at a time and I am Adam and I will catch you on the next one bye bye